I wanted to start this episode off with a quick product notification. The Standard H Avantis were the first release of the Standard H Signature Collection, which much to my delight, sold out. But good news, they're back in stock. Available in five colors and now available in double extra large, visit standard-h.com to pick yours up. And if you've never been to this site before, you'll receive 15% off your entire first order. As a side note, there's also been a restock of the Shift logo tees. And for you international listeners, international economy shipping is now a delivery option on the site. Thank you so much for the support, as I'm confident you'll love these shirts as well as this episode. Chances are good if you're listening to this, you also listen to the Gray NATO podcast, which today's guest co-hosts alongside friend and former guest James Stacy. He's also a longtime contributor for Hodinkee, a Gear Patrol alum, and officially the first Hodinkee editor to be featured on Talking Watches. Of course, I'm talking about Mr. Jason Heaton. I'm such a fan of his pragmatic approach to life, and all of the above only support my admiration. This conversation was a fun one. We of course talk watches and gear, but we delve into the reasons why we enjoy what we like, and even to my surprise, we take several minutes going deep on the manufacturing process of Oreo cookies. Yes, Oreo cookies. Jason truly is more than meets the eye, and I was excited to get a peek behind the curtain of his book Depth Charge, a fiction novel released four months ago and available through his website and the Hodinkee shop. Needless to say, I was thrilled to have Jason on the show, and we wrap things up with a tiny bit of travel advice and a shout-out segment to his wife, Kashani, who is awesome in her own right. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, first and foremost, um, not only thank you for taking the time, but before I forget... (laughs) um, Thank you so much for the support and the release of the Avanti. Uh, it was a total surprise when listening and, and humbled to say the least. So thank you so much. Oh, it's such a great shirt. And I, you know, um, I, I wear it quite a bit and I'm still waiting for your extra larges to get back in stock. I, I, I'd love to get one in each color. I just think they're great. Thanks. Um, and then, uh, and then of course I told you I had this minor disaster with it like within the first few days of owning it i was out uh, fiddling with the land rover and and managed to squirt like 90 weight gear oil right across the chest <laughs> um and i've got the light gray one and of course you know i thought it was just ruined and after a couple of washings it you can hardly even see it like it's it's just the tiniest sort of very light stain um and i think it'll eventually come out and it's funny because you know, if I wear the shirt on a warm day and my kind of my body heat reacts with the shirt, um, I get this slight waft of, of gear oil, which I, I quite <laughs> like, actually. I think it kind of goes well with the shirt. I, I'm thinking I should suggest that to you for future editions, you know, just sort of just do a pre rinse of, of oil, <laughs> infuse it with gear oil. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, that's <laughs> for a hilarious. True automotive experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I think I, I speak for myself anyway that I love the smell of gasoline. <laughs> yeah. 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 I do too. And and this, you know, having an old Land Rover, you get used to it, has a specific smell. I and mean, people used to tell me that that Land Rovers had a particular smell. And they sure mm. do. They smell of, uh, even though mine isn't a, a soft top, it's got the hard top on it, it does smell like an old like army tent uh, to a certain degree and then yeah and then this the smell that wafts up from the gearbox which is you know under this very thin 
you know, sheet metal right kind of by your left leg while mine's a right-hand drive. So my left leg and, and it, you get that gear oil smell and I really have quite grown to like it. Um, and then, yeah, a little bit of gasoline smell too. I suppose that's from the filler, filler neck or something like that. But, uh, right. It all kind of combines this lovely Land Rover perfume. I love it. Uh, yeah, the Land yeah. Rover perfume. They should, yeah, much in the same way I need to rinse my shirts with gear oil, I think uh, <laughs> Land Rover needs to release that scent as a as a cologne. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. The, the, the way that, uh, the way that uh, modern vehicles are going, they're expanding out into uh, you know jewelry and, and fragrances and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. Like, I was just thinking how, like, the electric cars can emit like sound of an engine out of some like they'll yeah, come out of the speakers yeah. it'd be funny yeah. if like the air conditioning could like blow gas fumes <laughs> in your face <laughs> uh, obviously with the windows down only and well ventilated and <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> oh my gosh um well again jason thanks so much for for taking the time to be a part of the show I really appreciate you coming on yeah sure thing yeah happy to be here um, you're based in Minnesota. Did you grow up there or have you been there a while? No, I, uh, was born in, uh, Illinois. And then when I was a little kid, we moved to Wisconsin and I spent kind of most of my teen years and, and high school days in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee area yeah. and then moved up to Minneapolis for, for university. So that was quite a, quite a ways away or quite a, quite a long time ago. And, uh, um, and I've been here ever since. So nice. Graduated from University of Minnesota with an English lit degree and, and just kind of stayed on, you know, got a series of jobs and settled down. And that's that's how it went. That's awesome. So obviously the Bucks just won the NBA championship. Do you care at all? Are you are you a Bucks homer? Uh, no, I kind of stopped following basketball many years ago. I mean, I used to I remember when I was growing up there, my dad and I used to go to Home games, I think we we didn't have season tickets, but, you know, you could buy blocks of you know, sort of ticket packages, and we used to go regularly at the, when it was at uh, the Mecca Arena is what it used to be called, and, and that was uh, that was a good time. I remember those days. Um, Marcus Johnson was on the team, Sidney Moncrief were a couple of the names that sort of dates me, but they were the kind of the big names back then. Right, right. So, I saw yeah. Eric Wind took his son Charlie to a game, which I just thought was awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those, those early, you know, Teen year experiences or even younger going to pro ball games is uh, so memorable. Yeah. Yeah, totally. What did your parents do while you're growing up? Uh, my dad was, uh, he had a series of jobs. So he was, uh, when I was a really little kid, he was, uh, he was an art teacher and, uh, he has a, a fine arts degree from also from the university of Minnesota. And, and so early on he was uh, a, a teacher and then, he uh, got into visual merchandising. So he used to do window displays for department stores. No kidding. And then kind of moved up the, the corporate ladder in various uh, kind of retail businesses. And um, and my mom uh, was a, a longtime teacher, mostly of, you know, young kids, uh, kindergarten age or even younger than that. So she's oh, wow. very little kid oriented, which uh, I'm sure much to her disappointment. I We never had kids, but uh, uh, <laughs> you know, she, right. she, she loves kids. So, yeah. Right. Right. But, uh, yeah. So were either of your parents or your dad specifically a car guy? Cause like, did, where did the car bug come from for you? Um, well, probably indirectly from my dad, you know, he, for a while when we were living in Milwaukee, he took a job at a, a kind of a startup department store chain down in the Chicago area, which was a good 
hour and a half commute each way from where we lived. And rather than move, he he started commuting in a what was a Renault Encore. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, but oh, it was wow, a two-door yeah. Renault that they used to sell here. And it was a tiny car, and my dad was a pretty big guy. And it was a long commute. And, of course, the gas mileage was great in that thing, but it wasn't very comfortable. So I remember we... Um, I was in high school, I wasn't quite driving age yet, but we went to shop for a new commuter car for him and we ended up at this dealership in suburban Milwaukee and there was this 1982 BMW 528e uh, nice. in, bl- in black with uh, like tan leather. And you know it was unlike any car we had owned. I mean we had Ford station wagons and this Renault and my dad had a 76 Honda Civic that he used to drive around and so pretty pretty run-of-the-mill kind of old cars and and I remember going test driving with with my dad in that BMW and it was just I think we both just lit up I think it changed both of our lives you know and so um, I kind of learned to drive in that car and had a number of sort of scary escapades you know <laughs> nearly totaling it one time and and you know whatever because it was terrible on on the ice and I was a very inexperienced driver and oh wow um, but it kind of stuck with me and then uh, I remember when I was you know, from there, my first car was a, a Volkswagen Rabbit, and I nice. kind of learned to, to tinker a little bit with that. And uh, and then from there, it was just this, you know, long list of kind of interesting vehicles. I've had, you know, Saab 900 Turbo and Audi 5000 and Amazing. Uh, Mark One Volkswagen Rabbit GTI um, and uh, Alfa Romeo uh, Spider and, and some other kind of fun things and then kind of landed with Land Rovers and that's that's where I'm in I'm at now man that's so crazy you've got iconic cars in your history that's amazing <laughs> yeah yeah they were fun it was it was mainly European sports cars for a long time I had a, a Jeep Wrangler for a while that was fun um, but yeah I've always always really enjoyed um, you know mainly German cars but I, you know if I look back I, I think you know I had a Volvo 240 wagon for a while, but that, that Saab 900 turbo still sticks out as a car. I I'd love to, you know, looking back, you know, I I don't have any regrets of selling any of them, but if I could get one back or if I was ever to rebuy one, I think it would be that, that 900 turbo. Yeah. It was a three door, you know, with a giant hatchback and that kind of clamshell hood. And uh, it was just a, it was a wonderful, wonderful car. Was it? I'm assuming it was manual, and I remember Saab's always had those like softball size gear shifts, <laughs> <laughs> huge gear shift. And in order to put it in reverse, it had this ring that you'd have to pull up with your right. Yeah, you know, I don't know how you describe it. And then the 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 key, the ignition key, was down between the seats, and you had to have it in reverse to start it. I think it was there was some weird starting sequence yeah. <laughs> and. I remember one time it was either stuck in reverse or the key was stuck in the ignition. Or there was some weird thing about it. I don't know. It was, you know, old cars. It was quirky. Um, but it was wonderful in the in the snow. You know, I think it was the first car I had that had heated seats and that big giant wraparound windshield. And, totally. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah, the one that got away from me was my grandfather's 88 Cherokee Laredo. And oh, nice. Dude, I miss that thing so much. I talk about it all the time with my wife, and I have had it on the to-do list forever to call the dealership that used to work on it and just have them search their banks for like the VIN number and then somehow track the car down because I will totally buy it again if I can find it. I just hope somebody (laughs) hasn't done like the modern, you know, lift kit 
making yeah. it a mud crawler or rock crawler. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just pray that that didn't happen because <laughs> it was pristine. It was pristine, but it oh, had man. it had a bunch of oil leaks that just were incessant. So as yeah. a result, I got rid of it because it was like you know just hemorrhaging money and. <laughs> And as a result, like, I mean, it was the one time that my grandmother was like, she ever got like audibly angry with me. She was just like, I can't believe you sold that. She's like, we would have bought that back. And I was like, it was the only (laughs) time in my life that I can recall that I felt like I disappointed my grandparents. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That conversation haunts me to this day. <laughs> um, that's crazy. What was the, what was the first job you ever had? Did you have a job in high school or anything? Um, well, I guess when I was in high school, you know, I I did a lot of, and I, I kind of lament the fact, you know, I always now that I'm a homeowner for the past what, sixteen years or so, I I always think, why, you know, where are the kids? Where are the teenagers that used to like cut grass and paint? you know, paint houses and stuff. Cause that's what I did. I, I would, oh, cool. you know, go around the neighborhood or talk to my parents, friends or whatever. And, and, you know, if they needed their garage painted, they'd hire me for the summer or, you know, a month or so. And I'd scrape it and sand it and prime it and paint it. And then, um, you know, cutting grass and that sort of stuff. But I, I did, I did, I, I made a brief attempt at having kind of the typical teenage job of working fast food. I, I had the early shift at a McDonald's where I, had to go in, I think it was at four o'clock in the morning and disassemble the soft serve machine, clean all the parts, you know, soak everything in in a soap bath and then sterilize it or whatever, and then reassemble it and fill it with the, whatever the mix was that made the soft serve. And, uh, which you can't, you can't disclose it, I guess that's that's classified information. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I've had, I've had interesting sort of food food making jobs because when I think back to kind of my first real job out of college okay when I was in college I well I guess this is also food prep related I <laughs> when I was in college I got a job roasting coffee um which was really fun I almost thought that I wanted to kind of make that a career like you know like buy an old roaster and, and stick it in a warehouse and yeah and roast coffee for a living because I, I still think about that as a retirement thing but um but then anyway after college you know, with an English lit degree, like there's only so much you can do. And I, I found a job as a technical writer with a company that, that engineered packaging machine systems for food, the food industry. And, um, so my first big gig was to travel almost weekly down to the, the, it was the biggest bakery in the world at the time. It was the Nabisco bakery in Chicago. Oh, no kidding. Right. We had to write all of the operation and maintenance manuals for all the machinery that made Oreo cookies and it was fascinating. You know, it was this giant old, it was like going into some medieval, you know, uh, strange cave with all these, these wacky, very custom machines for a very specific purpose. And they would, you know, take this kind of slurry of lard and whatever else for the filling. And then (laughs) the rotary sandwich machine, I remember it was called the RSM and it would, you know, put the, the the bottom cookie would come across on the conveyor belt, then it would go to squirt of the, the filling, and then this rotary machine would come and slap the top cookie on the Oreo, and then it would go into an oven or cooling tray or whatever it was. And and I remember one of life's little pleasures was to like eat an Oreo cookie fresh off the, fresh out of the oven. Which you know, who else can say that? It was it was pretty cool. 
Oh my God. I, I, I have so yeah. many questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So first and foremost, all right. So I grew up in North Carolina and yeah. uh, Krispy Kreme donuts was like founded where my grandparents lived. And so I like grew up on those. So like now they're all over the U S and if the hot now sign is on in the window, yeah, it's a lifelong thing. Like I have to stop (laughs) if it's illuminated. I, I, it doesn't matter if I'm hungry, I'm stopping. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. With this Oreo (laughs) cookie job of yours, which is utterly fascinating. Yeah. Did the top get put on in a screw like motion in the, opposite direction in the same way that we would unscrew the top when separating them? No. Um, so picture, <laughs> picture a, a big conveyor belt, um, with the bottom, the bottom cookie. And then as, as that row of cookies goes under the little nozzles, it would get a squirt of the filling. And then this, um, I, I guess you'd call it like a barrel, um, that had the top cookie. And I don't know how they adhered to the to that top, to that barrel so they didn't just fall off. But anyway, they would, as the barrel came around, it was timed so that it would line up with the bottom cookie with the filling on it and right. kind of slap it on. And then it would just, it was this kind of continuous process. And this was after both the cookies were baked. The lard concoction was made in this separate machine. And then they would go into this long, I can't remember what they called it, the cooling tunnel. The cooling tunnel, that's what it was. Nice. And uh, they would get cooled off and then into the packaging machinery at the end. And so... It was it was great, you know. It was it was it was fun work. It was uh, it taught me a lot about um, writing succinctly and about how machines work. And um, you know, in those days, you know, I, I would go as the technical writer. I would go with one of our technical illustrators who would take a camera, and we would document the whole thing, and then fly back to Minneapolis, go to the office, and then write about how this thing works and how to take it apart and maintain it and fix it and fill it and operate it. And, um, yeah, so I learned about, you know, photo cells and, and, uh, proximity switches and all the, all the little weird equipment that goes into these, these big packaging machines. And I kind of did that for a career cause then I even switched companies and I did it for a big Swedish company that makes the juice boxes and milk cartons out of Sweden. And I used to travel for that job and document the same sort of stuff. So it was, that was kind of the first half of my professional career was, was uh, technical writing for the food packaging industry. So, That's incredible. So when you were writing yeah. these things, who was reading it? Is it for like um, like manuals for the employees that were hired? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was, so there was a series of manuals. We had the installation manual, the operation manual, and the maintenance manual. And, Got it. Um, so installation would be as it suggests, and then operation was for the the workers that were hired, uh, mostly you know hourly workers that would come in and you know, stand at the machines and work it. And then the maintenance were for kind of the maintenance engineers um, that had to kind of keep these things running. So it was like maintenance schedules and all of that stuff. Yeah. So the, I guess the operators turn it on and off, but also fill the barrel with the tops of the cookies, yeah. et cetera. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man, that's yeah. insane. And, and it, it gave me a deep love for uh, technical manuals. To this day, sure. I still love a good a good manual. You know, I remember it's that's one of the. I don't know about you, but for me, one of the the fun things about getting a new vehicle is, or not a new vehicle, but an old vehicle, a used vehicle, a fun yeah. vehicle is is chasing down the the manual to fix it. You know, when I got the when I got the Land Rovers, it was like, oh, you, you know, you go on the forums online, and it's like you've got to get the Green Bible. You know, and the Green Bible is this green 
book that tells you how to basically fix, you know, maintain your, your old Land Rover. Um, sure. It's the official shop manual for it. So um, it's just fun to just sit on an evening, you know, in the winter by the fire and, and have a, a whiskey or something and just flip through. And, oh, that's how you rebuild the gearbox or whatever, you know. Oh, so. man. That's wonderful. That just like warms yeah. my heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's that's just awesome. Um, you were a part of the early days of Gear Patrol as a result, I guess, from technical writing. Was that sort of the, the foray into gear and stuff like that? Is you kind of made that switch? Like, how did you find Gear Patrol? Uh, so yeah, I, I, I had a series of day jobs and, um, you know, on the, on the side, I would be kind of perusing all of these kind of then new kind of cool websites that were coming up. This was, you know, 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at the time I had been working part-time at, at a shop here called Midwest Mountaineering and then at REI, um, to kind of just get discounts on outdoor gear. Cause I was doing a lot of hiking and skiing and backpacking and that sort of thing. And, um, so when gear patrol, which was a site that I visited, put out a call for, for freelance writers, cause they were just kind of growing at the time. Uh, I had to submit kind of some samples that I remember they had various categories and they said, you know, please write a review of a product that you own. Um, and then I don't remember, there were a couple of other little writing samples that I had to submit and I, I still have them. I, I don't know, they're somewhere on, on my computer and, and every once in a while I go back and look and I just kind of cringe. But at that time it was all about just gear reviews, just like short, you know, little blurbs, blurbs about the, the latest pair of boots or something. And, uh, yeah. and I got the job. Yeah. And then that kind of led into some watch coverage after I learned how to dive and got into dive watches and yeah, then it, you know, things just blossomed from there and then Hodinkee and on and on. So that's awesome. Yeah. I had a, uh, fashion and lifestyle blog as it were, uh, um, oh, wow. in like 2008 through oh, nice. two, or maybe it was 2009 through like 2013 when I went to work for Gucci and they, they put a kibosh on, uh, <laughs> on writing that because I was busy promoting other brands just in general sure which which now they can't stop you from doing any of that because of instagram and stuff how how it's all blown up so there's no way they're not you know so anyway it's funny how they're like social media clauses changed over the years but uh (laughs) that was kind of interesting uh it's still up if you want to check it out it's called screaming mouth (laughs) wow wow it's still there i mean yeah the internet doesn't forget yeah yeah it's alive uh i still (laughs) pay for the URL for nine ninety nine on GoDaddy annually or whatever it is. <laughs> it's worth 10 bucks to have the memento, I guess. But yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So like when you were writing for gear patrol, yeah, I only bring that up because I'm very familiar with the blurb writing process. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I will ask though, were you choosing the products that you were writing about then or were they giving you products to write about? Uh, it was, it was kind of a mix. Um, uh, it was, um, you know, at first it was kind of me chasing stuff down. Sometimes I'd write about things I had bought or owned myself. Um, and then as the site grew and as their exposure grew and my own exposure grew, then, you know, then the PR reps kind of find you. And then of course they want you to write up, um, various things. And, and I remember one of the ones I'm probably the most ashamed of was this uh, strange <laughs> product by Prestone and it was this spray bottle of some very f- foul liquid that you put on the windows of your car to keep them from freezing in the winter. 
Oh. And I remember, you know, writing up this, you know, gear review or this test, you know, because living in Minnesota, it's a wonderful place to test a product like that. We have like eight months of winter, you know. So I remember spraying it all over the windows of our, you know, Volvo SUV or whatever and then going out and, you know, sure enough, it worked. But, man, it left the filthiest film all over the windows for months. I couldn't get it off. It was this kind of oily greasy sort of film and smear when you'd use the windshield wipers and whatever but i'm sure that still can be found on the site somewhere but uh yeah yeah i mean you know my my kind of feeling was and and people still ask me like well did you ever write anything bad about a product and i'd say you know what I, i would i only wrote about stuff that i liked you know i only really wrote about stuff that i was interested in the same goes for any of the watch stuff i've written and it's um you know, most products these days, especially in the luxury watch space, are are by and large very good. You know, there's there's yeah. not much bad about a lot of stuff. But like, there were a few duds that would come across, and I'd kind of go back to the PR rep and say, you know, this just isn't working for me. This this uh, this photo backpack with the weird clamshell opening at the bottom for swinging around your waist so you can access your lenses is just not working for me. And I'd rather than. <laughs> kind of just write a bunch of negative stuff about it I'm, I'm, I'd just rather send it back to you and they were you know they were always okay with that because they don't want negative publicity and uh, right and so yeah it was uh, a lot of cool stuff and then and then Gear Patrol sort of let my leash out a little bit and the site expanded into a bit more of a, a lifestyle site and they, they really for a while there they got into you know some some travel essays and um, kind of more themed content and, and they, re- they really let me kind of just go to town and I just write, you know, travel and adventure stories about, you know, climbing Mount Rainier or swimming from Alcatraz across San Francisco Bay or, you know, backpacking trips and that sort of stuff. And, and it, it was, it allowed me to sort of live my, my dream of being sort of this mini John Krakauer, um, kind of adventure writer, which I, you know, I always wanted to be anyway, after years of subscribing to outside magazine, it was sort of my my dipping my toe into that into that space if you haven't heard episode one of the standard age podcast then let me tell you about my friend tim jackson as owner of passion fine jewelry tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available i'm talking about groenfeld Habring, kudoki roger smith roman gothier sarpaneva the list goes on the staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop, and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job, and like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C A N T 
C-O-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O or visit them at contonement.co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Well, obviously I was kind of introduced to you via the Grey NATO, of course, and, and Hodinkee, I guess. I guess I was reading your articles prior to me even listening to the Grey NATO, um, which is obviously your, your podcast with former Standard Age podcast guest James Stacy, who's, you know, just a sweetheart of a guy. Um, I'd imagine you kind of, and forgive me for maybe even putting words in your mouth, but is, is there like a big brother sort of mentality you have with James? Or is it just kind of compatriot? Uh, I think we're, we're I, I don't see the, the kind of the brother thing. I mean, I, I grew up with a sister, so I don't really know the brother relationship. So I guess maybe, <laughs> okay. maybe there's that. I think it's a little, I don't want to say a little less chummy. I would say it's, it's um, you know, we're, we're more good friends. Um, That's great. Than yeah. kind of more of a familial feel to it. But right. Uh, right. yeah, I was, I was thinking the other day, and I'm a pretty introverted guy, um, but um, I would probably say he's the person I, I talk to the most or not even talk, you know, we communicate on Slack most, most days, but you know, he's the guy I'm always bouncing things off of and vice versa, you know, just we'll come up, come across an interesting article or have a question about something. He's, you know, we, we, we play to our strengths. I mean, he's, he's obviously pretty dialed into kind of the tech scene. So anytime I have a question about, you know, file storage or, um, you know, a new laptop or a pair of headphones or something. He's, he's the go-to guy. I always kind of joke with him that he should, he was, he's kind of the, the modern version of, of what wire cutter used to be, you know, just sort of this really in-depth kind of critical reviewer of all things tech. So right, he's been a great right. resource for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, you know, with the pandemic and everything over the last year plus he and I were talking and, um, he too is somewhat of an introvert or at least very comfortable with being at home and things. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was one thing that was certainly exposed was, uh, the number <laughs> of people that I know and am friends with that are so comfortable being at home and that are introverted. <laughs> like I was completely unaware prior to the p- pandemic that, that I had so many introverted friends and I was just like yeah, starting to question, yeah. like, do you guys even want to hang out with me? Like, <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, I always joke, you know, with it, uh, you know, I was, I was like, uh, I was like born for this, you know, it's like, right. you know, yeah, you know, like being homebound or like locked in, like I, I can do this, you know? Um, yeah, totally. But, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's time. It's time to get out. I mean, I've, I, um, have you know branched out in the past couple of months and seen seen more people in those two months than I probably did in the previous you know eighteen or twenty four months and it's it's felt good it's felt good to reconnect yeah but, for sure uh, yeah yeah well what do you remember most about the first few episodes you guys recorded for Grey NATO I remember feeling uh, not like you know feeling like like nervous almost you know even though it was a recorded thing and, and James was going to edit it and we could cut stuff out and redo stuff there was this urgency this feeling of you know I hadn't done that sort of thing before and it was it was this idea that you know what if I don't know what to say or um, <laughs> you know kind of stumble around a little bit and and that that's completely evaporated now I mean there's just a comfort level that we have and totally um, but uh, you know a lot has changed, but also not much has changed. I think we still, you know, I, I don't know if it's a big secret, but, you know, we often just make up 
the topic like an hour before the episode and we'll be like <laughs> oh should we record today yeah we should we should definitely record and it's like what do you want to talk about um we haven't done a watch episode in a while let's talk about you know whatever and then like we'll quickly put together some kind of skeletal notes and uh and then uh, uh kind of just start recording and it just sort of flows i think the rapport that we've developed over five plus years of doing it kind of shows now that we we don't need to over prepare and we can kind of riff off each other um pretty well now so yeah um, that's changed you know that kind of comfort in and confidence i guess in in that what we're talking about people actually want to listen to sure which i'm always struck by you know i just think gosh you know when i whenever i talk to people in person or on you know, instagram direct messages or anything um we just have such a loyal and and really supportive audience and it's such a something we're both so thankful for is just just the support we get is just tremendous so. yeah you know there's a couple of things there like one is uh, just before we were recording we were just talking my wife and i about um well i just brought up the fact that like we as humans are we're, we're pack animals you know like we're herd animals and it's yeah. like to your point a moment ago when you're like yeah it's time you know to, to like see people again and do all that i think it's like i mean that's why solitary confinement is considered punishment in a prison system, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, right. True. it's not, yeah. it's not normal, you know? So, yeah. it's, and, yeah. and it doesn't help in any way. Um, yeah. so yeah, I think like, it, it's just really interesting that, that you bring that up too, that I think honestly, the gray NATO is, is by far one of my favorite podcasts. And I think it's because the, there are these commonalities and, and interests we as listeners and you guys as hosts share. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious though, like, is there any common positive feedback that you guys receive that may or may not allude to why the show is successful? Uh, you know, I think obviously the, the greatest amount of feedback or questions we get via email or individual messages is, is about, um, watch stuff, you know, which is actually mm -hmm. the least exciting to me. I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know the the watch world is is a crazy one and it's one that uh you know i have mixed feelings about but i th i think what we've done on the show is we've incorporated that into an overall uh, philosophy of life so to speak or or just a, a view world view and and i think where that fits in is it's a supporting a watch is a supporting element to the stuff you do and i think sure. if there's anything that we try to imbue the show with it's that and I think that's the feedback that we get. That's the majority of the, the good stuff that I see is people writing or, or saying in person or whatever it is. And they say, hey, you know, um, you've inspired me to learn how to dive or, or you know, I, I enjoyed your, your discussion with, you know, so-and-so and it's uh, made me pick up a new book or, you know, whatever. And it's like, to me, you know, without patting ourselves on the back too much, I, I, I feel like that, that level of inspiration has been like almost embarrassingly surprising to me. Like, it's like, wow. And you know, I can't believe the, the impact we have on, on some people in a, in a very positive way. And every time I think, you know, we might get a little down or like we've run out of things to talk about, or is this going to be interesting to people? I just kind of remember mm -hmm. that type of feedback. And I think, wow, you know, we're, we're kind of onto something good here. So we, we really kind of owe it to people to sort of keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I pat yourself on the back, like pat away. <laughs> it's, uh, it, yeah, it's well-deserved for sure. Um, 
Well, speaking of watches, I know you're saying that it's maybe your least thing, least favorite thing. I guess it, does that because it like feels like work, like that that is the work aspect of those conversations. Um, I you know I think you know I didn't I didn't grow up appreciating watches. My you know I I don't remember my dad wearing a particularly nice watch mm. or, or grandparents or relatives or anything like that. And and you know growing up in kind of the upper Midwest, there isn't a lot of uh, ostentatious show of wealth sort of thing. So you don't see a lot of Rolexes on wrists and that sort of thing. So um, for me to kind of come into watches from another side of them, which is the gear side, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I started at Gear Patrol for a reason. I mean, that was I, it was all about backpacks and bikes and skis and that sort of thing. And a watch was just another element of that. I always loved watches. I, I bought a mechanical Seiko diver in my senior year of high school and, and loved that watch. But, you know, it wasn't because it was precious or anything. It was because it made me feel like I could do anything with it. And that still is the way I feel. And I think having then moved into watches as kind of the main thrust of a career for the past decade, there's still this like kind of self-conscious inner part of me that that is still this sort of kid from Milwaukee that's like, you know, I, I this stuff isn't that special. I mean, this stuff, it, it's cool. I, <laughs> I like the mechanical aspect of watches, and I, I but I still gravitate towards kind of the humble one or even the not so humble one that you can just bash around and beat up and wear and do cool stuff with. I think that's what they should be all about. I, I understand that there are collectors that really want, you know, to, to line up a, a leather uh, bound case with some beautiful, you know, haute horlogerie pieces from, you know, Vacheron or, or Langa or something. And, and those are great. But it, to me, it's, it's all about, you know, what can I put on my wrist and what does it inspire me to go do? And, that sort of discomfort with a, a watch is something that, you know, you just snap a picture of your wrist and, and put it on Instagram for people to appreciate. It, it feels like you're, you know, the wrong reason for me, I guess. And, right. and that, that I just haven't been able to get, get out of that. And so I think going along with writing about watches, then that, that leads to a lot of people that assume that I'm into watches for the sake of, you know, having kind of an expensive or cool or rare piece on my wrist. And then, I have to kind of worm my way out of that type of a conversation by saying, you know, it's just, it's just a kind of a cool piece of gear, you know? Yeah. It's the so. supporting role of the movie. Yeah. Not, uh, not the hero. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear you say that, you know, because as somebody who does appreciate watches, uh, I'm, you know, certainly aesthetically driven. Um, yeah. and like, kind of like my car stuff. Like I know enough to get me in trouble, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and like you, you get under the hood and you do, you, you know, you wrench on your vehicles. Granted, I've got a, a very modern car, so it's trickier and trickier to do certain things without, you know, a computer hookup. But, um, yeah. uh, so I'm not really wrenching on cars, you know, at all ever. Um, yeah. and then much in the same way with, with the watch thing, it's like, it, it, you know, it's kind of funny as I was listening to you, I was like, yeah, you know, like I really do appreciate watches. I love the look at them. I, I, I actually like to have several different ones because they, I, I, they just go with different outfits or like whatever. Cause at the end yeah. of the day, I come from an apparel background. So it's, it's all about the outfit, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Right. Um, yeah. or what I'm doing, if I'm surfing, if I'm riding my bike, if I'm, you know, I don't even wear a watch while playing golf, but like, yeah. it's one of those things where, I also sort of immediately thought of the fact that like my aesthetic taste is also driven by very understated design. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. uh, yeah. and as a result, you know, 
and as a big fan of soliciting the double take, if you've ever seen my logo, you would understand that completely. Like, I just love <laughs> that, like, sort of second look and things like that. Um, I think yeah. the OP36 Rolex that I have currently on my wrist, which I, I meant to ask you for a wrist check, but we'll get to that. Um, yeah. Is, is one of those things that from 10 feet away, it could be a Seiko. It could be a bunch of different right. stuff, you know? And, and I love that because, you know, on one hand, it's kind of nobody's business but mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then, right. And then on the other, you know, it's funny. Just literally yesterday, I went and looked at um, carry-on bags. I need a new carry-on bag for the airplane. Sure. And, you know, I was looking at Away, and I was looking at Samsonite and Victorinox and... Uh, Ramoa and so you know everybody's barking about Ramoa in a way and and just the more I considered Ramoa let alone you know the $1,100 price tag (laughs) it was just kind of like you know even on Reddit people were saying oh it's just a status symbol and and I will say next to an away suitcase and I had them both in my hand um I could say that the Ramoa does feel like it's built better. I just don't yeah. know if it's built over twice as good. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. also, I kind of felt like rolling around a airport jetway. Like, there's this look at me element to it. In addition know, to kind of like that target, like, oh, right. You know, he's got a Ramoa. Uh, you know, there's nice stuff inside of there. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And I just don't it's just a different kind of attention. I mean, it's the same way where I'm like, I'm, I can appreciate a Lamborghini, but I would never own one. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like, you know, having owned some, some fun cars over the years and nice cars over the years, like you know, I had a, yeah. uh, an, one of the first generation Audi TTs and I, you oh, know, it was a beautiful sweet. car. Um, yeah. uh, and, and the alpha and whatever, but like, you know, you, you get out of the, the TT or you roll up to a stop sign, even not even the TT. Like, I, I don't know, for an example, um, we used to have a, a Miata and my wife and mm-hmm. I would go, she drove it more than me, but we would go for drives, top down drives on a nice evening. And I remember one time we were pulling away from a stop sign and there was a guy in like an SL Mercedes with the top down. And it was, I was just thinking, is he having whatever three four times more fun than we are and, right. and when you see him in his car like he's probably scared to park it in a parking lot at the grocery store or you know right. when people see that car or you know not to pick on 911 owners but you know like or well, lamborghini let's say like you look at somebody and you say you know the first thing that might come to mind is a oh, rich, rich jerk or whatever but you roll up in like a little old fiat 124 or the alpha or an old you know, battered Land Rover and, and yeah. you, you get a lot of thumbs ups and smiles and questions about it rather than, um, judgment kind of smirks or judgment. And, yeah. you know, I kind of feel the same about Ramoa or, you know, there's kind of this, this trend about Ramoa, old 911s, Leica cameras, vintage right. Rolex, you know, they have this, right. You know, people like them because they're rugged, but then they don't use them for anything rugged. <laughs> you know, oh, the yeah. Leica's the, the camera of the war correspondent. And it's like, yeah, but you know, like it costs six grand or something, you know, or five right, grand, right. and it's. Uh, I like my old Nikon's or whatever, you know. So it's, uh, I, it's kind yeah. of the same with the watches, and I, I'm being completely hypocritical here because I, I do have a small collection of Rolexes and, oh, and sure. nice watches, but uh, I, I don't wear them that much. I kind of reach for for other stuff. 
Right. Yeah. And I'm not trying to bash on Ramoa because I will say it's the best looking bag. I mean, it looks yeah. incredible. It looks like, yeah. where is my vintage 1675? Because I want to get on a Pan Am flight. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it really is a throwback. And, and, and I think that's the beauty of what design can do, right? It can transport you into in, in a different decade, you know, a different life, yeah. you know, visually, yeah. emotionally. And, and, um, I mean, let alone the fact that it's, it's made well. Um, I yeah. just, you know, I just couldn't justify it. I just, I, I'm, yeah. I, yeah, my, um, my CPA would probably say that I'm not in the right tax bracket yet for that bag. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do see a lot of Ramoas rolling around the halls in, in Basel and Geneva at the, at the watch events. You know, there's a lot of guys yeah. that have them. And I think the same level of appreciation for a nice mechanical watch is uh, the same as you, you might have for a, an old car or a, or a, a nice suitcase or even a Leica camera. I mean, I get it. Um, and maybe I'm sounding hypercritical of that stuff. I'm certainly in the same camp. I, I have a, a couple of Garmin watches that I literally only wear for specific activities and then I take them off and I just, I prefer, you know, the, the throwback sense or the nostalgia of, of wearing a mechanical watch. I mean, that's kind of what I, what I wear 24 seven, unless I'm doing something specific where I want to track distance or speed or heart rate or something. Totally. Yeah. I just, um, you know, subscribe heavily to the buy less, buy better thing. So only time will tell if I've made the right decision. (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, I know you bought that Seiko you mentioned previously with, uh, with lawn mowing money, which, which Seiko diver did you actually land on in high school? Uh, that is, that remains a mystery. Um, I, I had it for a few years. And then in the early nineties, I caught the, you know, Sunto used to make the altimeter barometer compass watch, the vector, which was kind of the hot watch for like mountaineers and outdoorsy people. And, and I kind of, that bug bit me. And then I was like, I don't want to wear this old dive watch. So I I sold it at a pawn shop and it's my biggest watch regret to date because I wish I still had that. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was a Pepsi bezel, and it was it had an Arabic day wheel. It was an automatic, and I th- could swear the case was kind of the SKX style case. And so I've run this by numerous Seiko experts on forums and other places, and and everybody's been suggesting various references. But the the one that it, in my mind it looks like is an XK, SKX. 009, but that watch was not made in the right. late 80s when I bought it. So it remains a mystery. I Like you with your Cherokee, I mean, I'd love to go to that pawn shop, which is, you know, about 15 minutes from here and like see if it's still in the back of some dusty case or if they have some record of it because I want it back, you know. I, I Actually, yeah. I just want to know what it was. And I've got these grainy old film photos of the 90s, you know, different trips I took where I was wearing it. I'm like, I try to like enhance it, you know, digitally. And I just, I can't, I can't see what it was. Right. Right. Well, good luck, man. Uh, I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for you. (laughs) Uh, Well, I certainly envision you potentially wearing a Walkman mowing those lawns. (laughs) And if, and if you weren't humor me, because I want to know what tapes you were listening to. (laughs) Oh man. I was a huge uh, fan of, um, uh, the police at the time. I really liked the police. Awesome. This was in the eighties. It was just as they were breaking up. So I kind of missed their heyday. Sure. Um, but then I was, I was kind of into that sort of moody introspective, 
uh, intellectual lyric kind of rock stuff. So, you know, what Sting was writing, Peter Gabriel, U2. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of my, my stuff back then. I'm, I'm, I've since kind of gotten really eclectic and nowadays it's just, you know, whatever, whatever James suggests for me, you know, he's into Fleet Foxes <laughs> and London grammar and some other kind of stuff. It's, it, I always joke and say that whatever I listen to always has to be in a minor key. I don't know right. if that's my kind of uh, my English major sort of poetic side. I kind of go towards the melancholy, but uh, I like that sort of stuff. So totally, totally. Yeah. What was the first album you bought with your own money? Oh, okay. I think uh, it was one of two, and I can't remember which of these two. But um, the band Journey had an album called Escape. Yeah. It was either that one that I bought on vinyl, um, or. Uh, and it might have been this one actually, Ario Speedwagon High Infidelity. Yes. Yes. And and the thing about that album was I was I don't know how old I was, fourteen, fifteen, and it was kind of scandalous to buy because I remember I was, you know, this young teenager and the cover of the album was a woman in lingerie. Yeah. Standing by like a turntable, like or or something, or maybe she was smoking a cigarette or something, but I remember like feeling a little bit like dirty, you know, like this teenage kid, like with this album cover that was a little bit risque, you know, and uh, and so it was one of those those teen sort of coming of age albums to buy, even though I don't think any of the the lyrics were particularly explicit or anything, but I just remember that that album cover. So it was one of those two, right? Um, but then I remember when CDs came out, I was, and this is obviously really showing my age, but I remember, you know, thinking, oh, now I'm gonna have to like buy all my vinyl again on CD because the sound quality is so much better. You know, I remember thinking that. And now I, of course I regret, I guess I have a lot of regrets, sobs and and, and, <laughs> and Seikos and my vinyl, you know, I sold all my vinyl and all the, all the old good stuff and replaced it. I was just CDs about and, to ask Jason, what are you yeah. doing with your life? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, geez. Yeah. It's the cyclical stuff. Then I end up rebuying it all for when it becomes trendy again, you know, film cameras and all that stuff. So, right. Right. Yeah. That's hilarious. Is there an album that you revisit most throughout your life that you would be able to identify? Like the album that just never gets old. Hmm. I think, uh, probably, you know, I remember I bought uh, U2's Octung baby. Uh, mm. It was the first year. It came out the year I moved to to Minneapolis for college, and it was one of those kind of tumultuous times in life where I was upping stakes and moving and into college and kind of in a relationship. and And it was um, that album is such a kind of a dark, sort of brooding album, and I and it has this sort of edge to it. And I, mm -hmm. I still think it's probably U 2s best album. And um, whenever I go back to that, it kind of takes me back to that that era and, and, yeah. and with, with sort of a sense of nostalgia. And, uh, so yeah, probably that one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I did want to congratulate you on your talking watches. Uh, it's super cool. Um, Oh, thanks. Yeah. How did, fun. yeah. How'd that come up given that you're basically, I mean, you're the first contributor to do it right. Aside from John Mayer, technically. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I, I don't think they had any sort of, um, strategy of, of starting to incorporate editors, uh, into, mm -hmm. into talking watches. But, um, when I first caught wind of it was from, you know, someone on, on the staff there who wrote to me and said, you know, we were doing some brainstorming about upcoming talking watches because they sort of put them on hold during the pandemic cause they couldn't do them in person. And then they, they had done one with that 
that I think he's uh, uh, he was a football uh, lineman, and and his was kind of the first virtual one, right? And and they said, oh, we're we're kind of wanting to ramp up talking watches again, and and your name came up as one consistently that people have been asking for. So um, they said, awesome. you know, are you game to do it? So we we did it, and it was fun. And I you know I did it with with Jack. I think it would have been fun to do with James, but I also feel like we would have just been completing each other's sentences, or you know, it's <laughs> almost like he knows he knows me too well to to ask yeah. certain questions about anything, you know, these days. So, so Jack and I have a long history anyway, but, um, so it was fun. It was kind of weird to do it virtually. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, it turned out well. And I, you know, it, it was, it's like this time capsule now because, you know, I had this kind of shaggy pandemic hair in the, in the video. <laughs> and, and since then I've, I've cut it, cut it back to my close shorn, more, more reasonable hairstyle now. So, yeah, you know, I wasn't going to ask, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Um yeah. Well, one of my favorite watches you own is that Tudor sub that you've got. Oh, yeah. It's just it's yeah. just so classic. Um yeah. What do you have any favorite modern releases of say the fa- like past few years from Tudor? From Tudor, I mean, I think the Black Bay 58, but I think, you know, James and I just we recorded uh, TGN yesterday and we did a, one of our Q&A episodes and, you know, I don't know, I swear there's at least one Tudor Pelagos mention on every TGN episode and I asked James <laughs> at one point like, "Why don't we own one?" You know, right. like why why do, you know, um because I think it's it's just the, the perfect modern dive watch. I, I I owned one for a while and and sold it, and I would love to. I'd love to have one of the LHD ones, which has the crown on the left side and the slightly tinted loom, and yep. a little bit of red writing on the dial. I think it's like the perfect, like with the Black Bay and the Black Bay Fifty Eight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're they're great watches. I mean, what a what a winning formula. But they're, it's basically the same watch that Tudor and Rolex were producing for you know sixty years, and yeah. and so they were kind of revisiting that formula. But with the Pelagos, it's it's the perfect modern, you know, kind of clean sheet of paper dive watch. Yeah. It's titanium. It's got a great bracelet. Uh, yeah. It's very stark looks. It's, it's just a wonderful watch. That would be my yeah. kind of pick out of their current collection. And it's the one that you don't hear about much. The black Bay kind of gets, uh, gets all the press. Right, right. Exactly. I, um, I don't own a blue watch, but I've always said if I ever get a blue and I'm going to get a Pelagos, just, I just, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a divisive color. Uh, that watch specifically, but to all the above mentioned points of, you know, I mean, that clasp is just genius. Um, it's, it's, it's like the perfect weight. Um, I think it, I think it even wears a tiny bit smaller than it measures. Um, yeah, I would say so. And as a owner of the, the 41, the black Bay black, uh, with the ETA movement, I don't, I mean, LHD would be nice. Uh, I think, yeah. I think that little creamy loom is, is yeah. so beautiful, but it's just that much too close to my black Bay black. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, th- I think the blue is, and it's perfect for summer. It'd be one hell of a yeah. surf watch. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. And the rubber strap on it. It's good. And yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's a, it's a wonderful piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't want to go on without mentioning your book depth charge. Um, oh, obviously nice. it's, it, it launched, I don't know. It's, several months ago now isn't it yeah so as of uh tomorrow we're recording this on the 28th um as of tomorrow it will be three months exactly because i launched it on april 29th or i started shipping it on april 29th 
So that's, yeah, it seems um, like a lot longer. I mean, I don't know. It <laughs> feels like it's been ages since it launched because it's just been so much uh, fun activities uh, since then. You know, publicity and, and marketing and shipping them out and all that stuff. So now, are you wind. are you doing the fulfillment yourself? So I. I kind of sell two ways. Um, I, I only ship out the signed copies. So if someone orders off my website, depthchargenovel.com, they, they can order a signed copy. And I have boxes of books in the basement that I sign and ship myself. Um, but I, the majority of them go through, through Amazon. Uh, so Amazon prints on demand and then they ship. So oh, wow. um, I, most copies have gone out through Amazon. And then the Hodinki shop uh, also stocks the book as well. And... Um, you know, I'm not sure what their sales numbers are, but, but they bought a, a healthy inventory of them and, and they've been selling them for the same price. And I, you know, if you're not a, a Jeff Bezos fan or, or whatever, or you're not an Amazon prime member, you know, the Hodinkee shop, uh, sells it and offers free shipping as well. So, I well, I would encourage free, people yeah. to just get the signed copy. That's, that's the way to go. Yeah. 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 And I, I, uh, I always put a little extra gift in that one too, for the same price. So people can feel a little, uh. A little more special than than just the sign, the signature in the front, but uh, nice. Yeah, that's been that's been fulfillment has been uh, a, a real learning experience. I don't I don't dislike it, but you know it's certainly a lot of work. And and during those first couple of weeks after launch, it was you know hundreds and hundreds of books, and and I got really good at it. And uh, and then I've kind of revisited that because I uh, I worked with the the really talented designer um, Paul Andrews who designed the cover of Depth Charge and, and we put together a couple of logos for these fictional elements of the book um, one was a dive resort and one was this dive support vessel that kind of uh, it plays a central role in the book and I said oh I, I want to make a couple of t-shirts with these logos on them as if like the the henchmen you know who are on board the the ship wear these crew shirts and so we made a, a run of these shirts and I posted a couple of pictures and some people were like, oh, can we buy those? Can we buy those? And so I, I made a run of of these T-shirts and, and those have almost sold out. I've, I've been shipping those out of here as well. So it's, it's been this weird element of book marketing to actually market T-shirts related to, you know, fictional elements in the book, which has been very, very fun, actually. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if I have, I don't recall, but... I'm not sure I've ever spoken to, to to anyone selling products through Amazon. Like, what is that experience like? And like, how much are you getting dinged in the uh, profitability category? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually, it's not horrible, uh, you know, Good. compared to, it's, it's comparable to, with the paperbacks, with, you know, I also, there's a Kindle version as well, which, you know, doesn't sell for much, so... It's it's not a lot of profit on those, but but with the book, it's not with the paperback, it's not much worse than I would get selling through a, a brick and mortar bookstore. I, I also work with a couple of local bookshops that are carrying it as well. But um, nice, you know the the and the print quality is a little not quite as good as my local printer that I went through for the the signed copies that I'm selling. It's uh, it's a slightly thinner uh, paper, which I don't mm-hmm. mind because I you know I always intended this to be kind of more of a pulpy, you know, fiction, you know, like beach read, stuff in your backpack, dog-eared kind of copy. So I don't mind if it feels a little flimsy, to be honest. I mean, that was, I, right. someone asked me like, why, why didn't you make a, a hardcover version? I'm like, I, I never wanted this to be a hardcover. This is, I feel like thrillers need to be like small, portable paperbacks. And uh, yeah. so I, th- I feel like if you truly want that experience, you get the, the Amazon version, which is, <laughs> which is slightly flimsier, but 
but uh, no, it hasn't been bad. In fact, it, they, they've been responsive when I've had customer service questions. Um, they cool. pay me promptly. They have good reporting function on their website for kind of checking daily sales and that sort of thing. So it's been it's been a, all in all a positive experience. Oh, well, that's really great. Yeah, yeah, there's something about a paperback, especially in the summer, you know, like yeah, yeah. getting getting it bent and, you know, getting yeah. sand on it or, or exactly. chlorine or whatever. Uh, right, right. Yeah. 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 Well, these yeah, are two guys, you and I, speaking about products that should be used, right? Like we would our watches. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah definitely. Right. Of course, we sure. subscribe yeah, I, to this. <laughs> I couldn't have been happier when a guy um, sent me a picture he had. I don't know what he does for a living, but he was flying from or to uh, someplace in Uzbekistan on Uzbekistan Airlines, mm. and he uh, he said he read the the book on this very long flight, and then he left it behind on the flight and said, "I'm just going to pay it forward and let the next person who finds it read it." And I was like, and he sent me this picture of it in the seat back pocket of of Uzbekistan Airlines with uh, like the safety card uh, from the airline showing, and I thought, you know, that's it's cool to see where the book ends up, you know, I mean, I've sold it all over the world. It's been in, you know, people in Bali and New Zealand and the UK, wow. and the Middle East and all over. So it's been, it's, it's fun to see where, where people are reading it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we can't really talk without mentioning your lovely wife, Kashani. Um, yeah. Can, can you describe what it's been like, not only working with her, but also kind of growing your career alongside her, I guess. And, and, She's, you know, developed her own following, at least with TGN listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. I mean, she came on that episode and people yeah. are like, oh, bring her back and make her a regular thing. And she was, we had a lot of fun. I mean, we, she's met James a couple of times and, and, um, yeah. and, you know, had fun together. I mean, she has a day job, so she's an IT project manager and very good at what she does. But, you know, when I started at, at Gear Patrol and was doing those gear reviews, I, I needed photos to go with the the write-ups so you know if i had a pair of hiking boots we would we'd go backpacking and she'd take the camera and and we'd we'd do you know photography of these products um and then that led to the watch stuff which became you know exponentially more complicated when you start talking about taking a dive watch underwater and then you need underwater housings and and lighting and all of that stuff and not to mention learning to dive um, which she did a, a year or two after i did and and it's just become this wonderful uh, little side gig for for her, and and of course a supporting element of of my primary work, and and so it's it's been fun. And then when we've had a couple of commercial gigs, uh, just doing product photography for you know a few watch brands that needed underwater photos, and um, and then you know editorial projects and that sort of thing. And so it's been it's been rewarding. I think now we've gotten to the point where. I and we are kind of backing away from kind of that heavy focus on, on dive watch reviewing because <laughs> what we found is that every every dive trip we did, I would be hauling along two or three loaner oh, yeah. dive watches to, to take diving to get photos of. And then we would spend the entire week that we were supposedly on vacation trying to get the right shots underwater. And it just, you know, you don't spend any time looking at critters or shipwrecks or coral. And uh, so it kind of became... You know, when the when the when your work becomes your life, you know, you you kind of uh, we had to make a change. So we, yeah. we just booked a an upcoming dive trip in the next few weeks, and uh, um, we decided, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do anything editorially. We're not going to like go seeking quote unquote content. 
uh, mm-hmm. from this trip. We're just going to go have fun and, and go diving. So awesome. Um, but, but yeah, it's been it's been really rewarding and really fun. And, and even through through writing the the novel, uh, you know, she was right there going over plot plot strategies and and reviewing chapters. And I would read stuff aloud to her. And then she did some heavy duty proofreading at the end. So it was uh, couldn't have done it without her. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I know you, you often talk about Bonaire and I've, I've never, I'm not a diver. So, uh, I be, it's just North of Venezuela, right? It is. It's, uh, there's the ABC islands, Aruba, Bonaire and Curacao, and they're all right, right. near each other. And they're, they're Dutch they're actually Dutch, uh, the Dutch part of the Dutch Caribbean, the Netherlands Antilles. So, uh, you know, it's mostly populated by, by, uh, Dutch people. Um, and I, you know, that's the language you hear there and the, Grocery stores are Dutch and, and whatever, and um, the architecture's Dutch. And uh, so it's a really unique place to, to go. And, the, and the, uh, you know, Bonaire itself is a pretty pretty barren, kind of scrubby, dry, windblown place, but it's it's got beautiful reefs offshore, and uh, it's just it's a lovely, lovely place to go diving. I, so- I got a question from somebody on, on our TGN episode asking, like, you know, I'm not a diver, but I'm thinking about taking my family to Bonaire for Christmas. And I thought, you know, I might suggest Curacao because there's just a little bit more to do topside. Like there's an interesting kind of city. You can go shopping and dining and that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Whereas Bonaire, it's pretty, pretty focused on the diving crowd. But Got uh, it. other than that, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I was given that it's Dutch. I was wondering how the cycling scene was. <laughs> yeah. Um, you do see people and I, I would you know, I'm, I'm a long time diehard cyclist, but I, there's no way I'd bike there. It's, it's so windy and it's like, and it's so hot. I mean, I, yeah. if there's one thing I, I dislike, it's, it's riding or doing any sort of exercise outside in the heat. So I always do my stuff early in the morning, but even there, right. you know, it'll be, it'll be just this offshore straight line, you know, 25, 30 mile an hour wind. That's just kind of blowing this hot air. <laughs> I think it would be just br- <laughs> brutal. I suppose if you live yeah. there, you know, you might get used to it, but uh, yeah. Yeah, in Vegas they call it the hair dryer. You know, it's yeah. just so hot. That's what it feels like. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's crazy. So what are you riding these days, speaking of bikes? Uh I kind of divested all of my bikes. You know, I used to have a handful of interesting stuff. I, I got rid of my I had a carbon fiber look uh road bike nice. uh, that I sold a few years ago and, and I just thought I'm gonna dial back and and kind of just um go for a little more comfort. So there's a local company called Twin Six that that um, makes kind of really kind of cool clothing, cycling clothing, jerseys and that sort of stuff that they design locally. And then they've got this lineup of, of bikes and, and it's the one I've got is called the Rando, which is, you know, short for Randonnée. And it's sort of a gravel bike. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gravel bike is kind of a fancy term for what used to be touring bike or a cyclocross or sort of a hybrid sort of between the two. Yeah. Um, but it's a, it's a drop bar, steel frame, uh, road bike. It's in sort of this bright orange. I love orange and it's orange and black. And then, uh, it came with full, full orange fenders and, and some kind of fatter tires and disc brakes. And, um, since then I've, I've taken the fenders off and I've put some, some really wide kind of 42 millimeter, uh, uh sort of smooth tires on it for a nice plush ride and it's it's a fast bike i mean it's fast it's comfortable it's uh it, it fits me really well and i always you know after years of kind of flipping bikes and having a variety of you know titanium and carbon and steel and aluminum like this just kind of feels right and i always preach the 
you know, go for comfort, you know, go for fit uh, first yeah. and foremost. Cause if, you know, even if a bike's a little heavier, you know, like if it's, if it's comfortable and you can ride for hours on it, that's, that makes all the difference. Totally. Steel is real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good deal, man. Well, just wrapping up, because I think we can't get off here without all of us learning what is next in the line of merch from TGN. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have some things cooking. In fact, uh, today I was uh, I was working on, um, you know, we've got to we've got to have a more of a like a web presence before we can launch anything like that. You know, we're, we're now on Substack, which is Right. Uh, a place that I've been using for for kind of a subscription newsletter, but but we decided to kind of put all of our TGN show notes there. Um, yeah. But but Substack doesn't really support any kind of merchandise sales or anything like that. So um, that's kind of the next step. But um, we have a few things in, in line. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them up here. But you know, <laughs> those of you that have been longtime TGN listeners will know that we we did kind of a supporter pack years ago where we had stickers and patches and and NATO straps. And, and so that's kind of a logical place for us to, to move in the, in the near future. So people can sweet kind of look out for stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, yeah. definitely be in lookout for that. Um, Jason, thanks so much once again, really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and, uh, and, uh, all the best with, uh, with standard H and, and get more of those XL t-shirts in so I can spill some more oil on them. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Jason. I will be um, in touch regarding the episode launching. And of course, uh, with the Avantis, I think, uh, I don't know if you're on my email list or not, but either way, I'll DM you or something. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, Jason. Take care. All right. Yeah. Okay. Another huge thanks goes to Jason and to all of you for listening. As mentioned, the Avantis are back in stock, so just visit standard-h.com. And I hope to catch you in another two weeks' time for another episode. As always, thank you to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track and to Clear Audio for providing the noise-canceling headphones. Hope you're all staying happy and healthy. Ciao.